0: Hello and welcome to Politics Theory Other. In June, the Progressive Economics 2022 conference, a one-day festival of transformative economic thinking, took place at the University of Greenwich. In a world battered by crises facing environmental collapse, PEF brought together leading thinkers from across the progressive movement to present the arguments and solutions we need to build a radically better economy. Speakers included Gargi Bhattacharya, Aram Bananav, Francesca Brea, James Meadway, Kate Pickett, John McDonnell MP and David Edgerton amongst many others. PTO was pleased to be an official media partner of Progressive Economics 2022 and we're posting some of the excellent panel discussions that took place at the event. Government intervention is back in a big way as countries turn back on years of free market ideology to actively support national industries in an increasingly competitive and unstable world. This session with David Edgerton, Paul Sweeney and Michael Jacobs presents the case for an active industrial strategy to meet social and economic goals.
1: This is Progressive Economy Forum.
2: This is a recording of the Industrial Strategy or Industrial Decline panel from Progressive Economics 2022, a festival for the future of economics. Government intervention is back in a big way, as countries turn back on years of free market ideology to actively support national industries in an increasingly competitive and unstable world. This session presents the case for an active industrial strategy to meet social and economic goals. Our first speaker is Michael Jacobs, economist and political theorist Specializing in post-neoliberal political economy, climate change and environmental policy, and green and social democratic thought. Prior to joining Sheffield Political Economy Research Institute, Michael was director of the IPPR Commission on Economic Justice and principal author and editor of the commission's final report, Prosperity and Justice, a plan for the new economy, published in 2018.
3: Good to see you all on a lovely sunny afternoon when there are lovely green spaces and a river to have enjoyed uh, instead. So uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, It is a a really important moment uh, to be discussing industrial strategy. Um, I don't know how far people have kind of followed the economic news over the last few days. We've had recent reports from both the World Bank and the OECD about the state of the British economy as indeed the rest of the industrialised world. And uh, as you may have seen, the OECD predicts that growth in the UK economy will be the slowest of all major industrialized nations except for Russia um, uh, over the next uh, year. And the World Bank and the OECD have pointed out to tremendous headwinds uh, facing the global economy. Growth rates are going to be well down uh, on what they were expected to be um, and uh, before the and what they were before the pandemic. Um, And the impact of inflation is going to have a very deeply contractionary effect. Um, We think of inflation as a rise in prices, and we may be pleased when inflation falls. Inflation is, of course, the rise in prices and is not the price level. When inflation, presumably towards the end of next year, uh, is, as expected, falls back to normal levels, there will have been nearly two years of inflation running between 6 and 10%. And that means that, let's say that's an average of 8% over two years, that means that everybody's incomes, or at least all the people who buy uh, the standard basket of goods, their incomes, uh, in real terms, have fallen by that amount over that period minus whatever wage or benefit increases they've had. So wage growth at the moment is running quite healthy. It's about 4%. Um, so let's take that off and let's say inflation is 9% this year. That means there is a general reduction in income of 5%. And even when inflation returns to nothing, which it won't do, you've lost that 5%. That is a reduction. The price level has risen. A rate of inflation of nothing doesn't mean prices are coming back down again. It means prices are staying up there and they're not rising any further. So this is a very big cut in incomes. That's what inflation does. And of course, this hurts people whose incomes are lower much more than it hurts people whose incomes are higher. So we are going into stagflation now, almost certainly, uh, possibly into a a formal recession when income, the gross national uh, product actually declines, but certainly very poor growth. We've got incomes now uh, uh, falling at their fastest rate uh, for quite a long time. Um, And as we know, that's having tremendous impacts, uh, really desperately serious impacts on people at the lowest um, uh, income level. So the British economy is not coming out of Covid well, Um, it's coming out slightly worse than other economies, but all economies, advanced economies are coming out badly, and we went into the pandemic in not a strong position either. Um, And the basis of industrial strategy as a way of thinking about what you should do about this is to acknowledge that there are deep weaknesses in the structure of the British economy and other countries, most other countries have a much more advanced form of industrial strategy than we do, but let's talk about the UK, um, and that you need to get to grips as a government in economic policy with the structural weaknesses of your economy. Um, and uh, Patrick is absolutely right that uh, industrial strategy has actually been kind of revived, in fact, since about 20, 2009. So people don't really remember this, but after the financial crash... Um, Gordon Brown brought Peter Mandelson back into government. Peter Mandelson looked at the state of the British economy and said, I think we're going to need to be more interventionist. We had a big recession following the financial crash and started out on a very embryonic industrial strategy by which was generally meant, let's find some important industries and try and support them. This originally emerged because the car industry, which is one of our most important manufacturing sectors, was about to go out of business and basically without Uh, a big bailout from the UK government, Um, uh, we would have seen the loss of huge numbers of jobs uh, in the car industry. Government felt it just had to do that, which was not something the Labour government had done before. And Peter Mandelson and Gordon Brown got a bit interested in a kind of industrial strategy, then lost the election to 2010. And when the coalition came in, David Willits was the uh, industry minister, and he was actually quite interested in this. And he, with Vince Cable, who was the uh, business secretary, began a putative uh, industrial uh, strategy again focused on the main big sectors that we thought were the most advanced ones, where manufacturing jobs could be kept: pharmaceuticals, life sciences, aer- aerospace, car manufacturing. Um, after Theresa May became uh, prime minister, she actually renamed the business department, the Department of Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. Um, her advisor. Um, 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 what's his, what was his name? I um, can't remember. Nick, uh, Nick Timothy. Nick Timothy was very taken by the, weak, the structural weaknesses of the economy and wanted to do something. Since Boris Johnson's come in, although the, uh, the uh, Business Fund is still called Industrial Strategy, Industrial Strategy has been uh, much downgraded, as Patrick says. The Industrial Strategy Council um, has been um, uh, has been abolished, and nothing you hear now coming out of the Conservative Party is about it. The interesting thing here is that New Labour was also not interested in industrial strategy. I worked, as Patrick said, for for, uh, Gordon Brown, both at the Treasury and at Number 10, and right until the very end, um, New Labour's uh, belief was that the British economy worked pretty well, and the engines of growth, which were largely the finance sector and professional services those are much our biggest export sectors and a number of other sectors were working pretty well generating growth generating employment we had quite high employment in the 2000s um, and generating tax revenues and tax revenues were pouring in from the city i can remember sitting in the treasury every january looking at reports of the bonuses being earned by uh city um uh, financiers and rubbing our hands, thinking, great, that's some more money we can spend in the budget in March, because that's where taxes were coming from. And Labour's basic, it was a kind of Faustian pact with, with British capitalism was. As long as British capitalism carries on working like this, generating uh, uh, tax uh, receipts, which we can then spend on public services, on child benefit, on pensions, that's going to be the limit. And Labour's economic policy, apart from its kind of macro policy, Bank of England independence and so on, was supply-side we will make sure that people are trained we did various kinds of initiatives most of which didn't work on training for adults for young people we will spend more money in uh, in education uh, higher education we will increase the number of graduates and so on we will do some do some infrastructure but not a huge amount we did some some but basically we'll help on the supply side and then the economy will do its bit in generating that growth that employment and those tax revenue and for us uh, it worked pretty well, actually. The 2000s were pretty good pretty good times. As we now know, it was all based on a completely unsustainable financial model. The debt that was being built and the risk that was being built in the financial system all came crashing down in 2008. What New Labour didn't do was address the fundamental weaknesses uh, in the British economy. The British economy has five, at least five, but I'm going to limit it to five, huge problems which cannot be addressed by macroeconomic stability, uh, on the one hand, which is kind of keeping inflation under control and uh, a bit of supply side uh, labor market uh, training and so on on the other. Where you need with the problems that you need actually to get into the engine of the economy to do something about. So the first is that our productivity is considerably lower than our main European counterparts. It's about uh, four fifths uh, of uh, France's, uh, three quarters of Germany's. Um, and uh, and has basically stalled. Productivity growth has stalled since the financial crisis. It's been almost none. So our productivity is not improving. And obviously productivity is not the only reason that you get wage... Productivity improvement is not the only reason you get wage improvement, but it is a very important basis for wage improvement. Our wages in the UK have been stagnant now, on average, since 2008. And if you traced the path of productivity and wage improvement uh, before 2008 and continued it to now, we would all be several thousand pounds richer than we are today. And obviously the financial crash had the first impact austerity, then we had the the pandemic um, uh, uh, and so on. But we have a productivity um, problem. Why do we have a productivity problem? Well, we have a much lower rate of business investment and indeed public investment as well, although that's been rising a little bit recently, out than our Uh, European counterparts. And by the rate of investment, I mean the percentage of GDP, of national income, which is invested. Our rate is much lower than other countries. And it's investment that generates productivity improvements. It's investment in equipment, technology, uh, it's investment in organisation, and it's it's investment in in skills. And if your investment rate is low, you're likely to have a very low uh, productivity rate. Um, uh, Thirdly, we have an incredibly geographically skewed pattern of investment. Almost all the investment in the last 30 to 40 years, not all, but a huge proportion has gone into London and in the southeast. Um, the golden triangle between London, Oxford and Cambridge is where much of our uh, most productive uh, companies in the sense of in new technologies, uh, growth and so on, uh, have been. And as everybody knows, we've seen the decline of many other parts of the country. Pockets of activity around cities, certainly, but nothing Uh, like the the spread out geography, uh, economic geography of a country like Germany um, where there are are growth nodes uh, all over the country. We've got a very, very skewed, we are the most um, uh, geographically unequal country in Europe. Fourthly, we have a very poor balance of trade. Um, If you look at our trade figures, we are constantly in trade deficit which is made up by capital inflows. So you wonder why so many companies have been bought up Uh, British companies have been bought up by uh, foreign uh, uh, banks and companies, our water companies, our energy companies, uh, our airports and various others. Well, that is necessary in an economy which is not uh, uh, producing enough foreign, which doesn't earn enough foreign exchange to uh, pay for all its imports. You have to have capital inflow if your trade balance is uh, in deficit, which ours has been. We don't produce enough that other people want in the rest of the world. So we live on the inflows uh, of capital from uh, abroad. Um, We have a very successful financial sector in terms of exports, uh, but we have a very, very concentrated export profile. Other countries have much more diverse export profiles. Um, And fifthly, we have insufficient investment in green and low-carbon sectors. And I pick that out as a kind of subset of investment because climate change is one of the great problems we face, Uh, Our contribution to it historically and still today is huge. Uh, It is our legal responsibility now under our Climate Change Act and our 2050 net zero target to reduce our emissions. We're not on uh, that path. So we have major problems which we need to address. Why do we have these problems? It's about the structure of the British economy and about the engine of the economy. So firstly, um, we have uh, 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 had a, uh, a huge... Problem uh, of a uh, of an overflexible labour market. This used to be a success, apparently, of the British economy. So during the boom years of the of the nineties and two thousands, we would boast about our flexible labour market, which enabled people to be employed very easily and quickly. Um, and, and I worked in Paris for a while, and uh, and I said to the organisation, "Do you want to employ me?" And they said, "It'll take us two years to work out to get the paperwork to employ you. Can you just be a contractor?" In France, it's very difficult to employ somebody. It's a very bureaucratic process. It takes months and months. In the UK, you can be employed just like that, and so we have a, and of course, you can be sacked just like that as well. You don't get any employment rights for a year, and we have a gig economy that um, that uh, two years, uh, years. Um, uh, quite correct. Uh, And we have a gig economy in which is uh, many, many people, nearly a million people on zero hours contracts now. Fifteen percent of the labour force self-employed. Of course, many of those people not. not really self-employed, they're just working for for a single uh, client and so on. Now, what's the problem with that labour market? Well, at a personal level, it makes people very insecure. It's a very, very poor basis to build a society on, for people to build lives on. But in terms of productivity, it means that it's much too cheap for a firm to employ um, an extra hour of labour, not even a day of labour anymore. An extra hour of labour, if you need a bit more production, you can just pick some extra hours of labour... And that means you don't invest in the equipment, the technology, the organisation or the skills, which will actually raise productivity. So our labour market is now acting against the need to improve our, uh, our productivity. Secondly, we have a shareholder based model of governance of our companies, which increasingly over the last 20 years has tended towards a focus on short term returns rather than long term investment. We have a, uh, a corporate governance model, which basically gives priority to shareholders and to shareholders, however long they own the shares. So most shareholders now, uh, the average length of time that a share is held in a bridge company is six months. Most workers work for those companies for six, for, on average for six years. This means that the people who own the company have very little interest in its long term success. Because what they want to know is, is their share going to be worth more over the period in which they can, they might wish to hold it uh, and sell it. They have much less investment in the success of the company than the workers do. But they are the owners. And increasingly, um, because of the lower rate of profit that was being earned, shareholders are saying, we want profits, we want dividends. And companies are being forced into doing things which improve the dividend, including buying back their own shares lots and lots of companies now buy back their own shares. We saw this with BP recently. What is it going to do with its huge profit it's made out of the uh, recent oil price increase? Well, it's going to buy quite a lot of its shares back, which raises obviously the price and the value of the shares to the remaining shareholders. It also increases the remuneration for the executives who are paid in shares. Um, um, But this focus of a shareholder Uh, Based uh, corporate governance system on quick returns means that the long-term investment in innovation, technology, and so on isn't occurring. Anybody who's seen or heard Mariana Mazzucato will have heard this uh, argument before. Very convincing uh, argument she makes. Um, Thirdly, um, because we have um, uh, uh, because we allow investment, geographic um, investment, to be basically uh, decided by investors and private the private sector, we have, uh, and we have very few mechanisms to kind of push them out beyond London and Southeast. We've allowed this geographic concentration. Fourth, our banks invest mainly in land and property. If you look at the portfolios of British banks, they are heavily weighted towards land and property, uh, personal mortgages, business mortgages, and so on, land speculation, and not into investment in companies. So our financial system is not really supporting our, our businesses. Um, and because the City of London, which is the big, obviously, centre, is not an instrument for financing the British economy. The City of London is an instrument for financing the global economy, and its companies are not particularly concerned about uh, about the UK. We don't have a financial system whose job it is to finance investment in the UK. So all of those problems lead to uh, a solution which, in broad terms, is called industrial strategy. And what I mean by that, and people like Marianne Mazzucato like my colleagues here, um, is a system which is looking to, or is a, is a set of policies which are looking to try and affect and reform the core engine and structure of the economy. So not just provide good, stable macroeconomic conditions, not just help the supply side, but actually look at what companies are investing in and how they can be encouraged to invest in different things, more into long-term investment in innovation, more into innovation, more outside London and the southeast, more green investment, More investment in equipment and and, and people. So very quickly, let me just run through 10 different components that might be in industrial strategy. And then my colleagues are going to talk a little bit uh, more about these. Firstly, let's just deal with the high-tech issue. Most people, when they think of industrial strategy, think high-tech and manufacturing. And that is because most of the industrial strategy that occurred in the 1970s, which was the kind of heyday of British uh, industrial strategy, mixed success record, not as terrible as some people say, but but not wholly successful. Was focused on our manufacturing sectors. We had more of them then, but also since 2010, it's been focused on aerospace, uh, car manufacturing, automotive, life sciences, and so on. Um, the reason for that is because those are the rather few areas that we are good at in the UK. That we have very high tech. Um, uh, research and development going on, and because we still have a bit of fetishization of manufacturing jobs, and those are the manufacturing sectors. My own feeling is industrial studies should be helping those companies, but those companies are almost always the best equipped already. That's why they're successful. They are high-tech, they've got very good research and innovation, they employ um, uh, graduates who are well-paid, uh, and so on. The problem we have is in the rest of the economy. Those companies have quite high productivity. The problem we have is in what uh, the Manchester team at Cresc call the foundational economy. Uh, Rachel Reeves has called the everyday economy, which is the economy that most people work in. Most people do not work in life sciences and aerospace and automotive. There are quite a lot. They work in retail and distribution and logistics and care and education and the health service. More, More service industries much more low pay, many more women and people of colour work in those sectors, not so many in the, in the big manufacturing sectors. And that's where productivity is much weaker than in other countries. Very interesting work done by the Bank of England, where Andy Haldane was chief economist there, on just how poor our productivity is in comparable sectors to other European countries. So that's where the new thinking in industrial strategy says, let's not just go over to the high-tech manufacturing, exporting sectors, but also let's look at the everyday economy, the foundation economy, and how we can raise productivity there. And in practice, that means more robots, not fewer. People think the robots are taking over. Well, if only they were. There are very, very few robots in the British economy compared to, for example, Japan or Korea or other countries. We don't utilise the most modern technologies. And, of course, we've suddenly got a moment when we've got a labour supply shortage, and actually this is exactly the moment to bring more automation in, but to do it through a collective bargaining process, which means that workers get some of the benefits of that, and it doesn't just go to the capital owners and workers are made unemployed. And that's why a third element of industrial strategy has got to be the relationship between businesses, managers, workers, and government. It's got to be a tripartite process. New technologies can displace workers. They, that needs to be a managed uh, a managed process. Let me very quickly run uh, through some of the other things. Um, we need to uh, reform the labour market. We need to make it harder to employ and sack people uh, so quickly and easily. That does mean raising labour standards, probably getting rid of lo- uh, uh, zero hours contracts um, uh, and providing uh, proper resource uh, rights. We definitely need, as I say, uh, collective bargaining, much stronger public uh, much rather collective action. We need a public investment bank. We kind of have one now. The government set up an infrastructure bank, but it's much smaller. There's a, there's a Scottish in, in, investment uh, bank. Labour had got it under our previous leadership. Um, Germany famously has the KFW, which is a public investment bank. The great thing about that is it's not allowed to invest in whatever makes the most money, wherever in the world. It's got to invest in the German economy, and that's the best thing. We need regional economic powers. We are not going to redistribute the economy around the whole of the UK, unless there are much stronger regional and national economic powers in the nations uh, uh, and and regions. Um, And uh, we need a, a set of climate policies which create the demand for green sectors. Climate policy is a demand and supply issue. You have to have targets for emissions which create the demand for the equipment, the people, which then provide the green services. Home insulation, renewable energy, battery storage, smart grids, and so on. So we need a very strong climate policy framework that will then create demand uh, um, uh, for those things. And lastly, and this is very interesting that Labour is going in this direction, if there is one thing that Brexit allows us to do in economic policy that we could not do before, it is to focus public procurement on British companies. Um, Under EU rules, you have to put all procurement out to the whole of the EU, you can't say you've got to produce in the UK. Under out of the EU, we can do that. And there is a really interesting putative strategy of saying how do we use public procurement, which is a huge amount of money, to improve the British economy, the supply uh, of jobs, uh, and so on. And that seems to me to be a really interesting area that we can explore further in the conversation. Thank you.
2: Our next speaker is Paul Sweeney, a member of the Scottish Labour and Co-operative Party. He currently serves as member of the Scottish Parliament for the Glasgow region.
1: Thanks very much. Um, well, quite the, quite the scene setting, uh, I think it's fair to say, um, about the structural weaknesses of the British economy and some of the characteristics which undermine attempts historically to introduce an effective industrial strategy which promotes high investment, promotes high capital stock in the economy. Um, and I think some of the you know reasons for that are long running and actually date back to the Victorian era in many cases. British industry was heavily characterised by depressing wages, highly stratified um, labour markets, you know, trade unions that were highly um, fragmented and so on. Uh, These things have been driving downward pressure on wages across the British industry for decades, centuries, since industrialisation. And it's a relatively recent post-war phenomenon where that that leverage was garnered in the British economy um, and has since been dissipated again. So I think it is an interesting proposition. And in my background, why I became interested in industrial strategy, became interested in British industry was because of my background. I grew up in Glasgow, which was probably one of the most rapidly industrialised cities in the history of the modern world, but also suffered the most rapid deindustrialization simultaneously. Oh, subsequently. Um, so I grew up in the 1990s. My dad worked in the shipbuilding industry. Uh, and you know, one of my first formative experiences was being on my dad's shoulders at the launch of a ship on the Clyde. The biggest man-made moving object built by my, you know in the world... Sliding down into the river. It's quite a dramatic sight for a five-year-old to watch that makes an impression. Somewhat spiritual because everybody, everybody individually felt they built it. You know, so there is that you know Michael talks about that connection with the product. I think that's why we do fetishize manufacturing because there's this kind of spiritual connection to it. Uh, people could take pride in the, the product of something tangible, right? So I think I, I always have that unashamed emotional connection to, to shipbuilding. And I ended up Despite studying an economics degree, ended up working in the shipbuilding industry. So I started on a graduate program with BE systems in 2010, um, working on building the UK's Type 45 destroyers and Queen Elizabeth class aircraft carriers. <laughs> um, and there's very much an industrial strategy and heavy public procurement. I think it was Gordon Brown who made sure that the aircraft carriers were built in Resyth and his constituency. <laughs> you know, so the patronage of political investment in certain sectors of industry is quite clearly there. Aerospace is a good example, pan-European project in Airbus, uh, you know, the subsequent uh, 1980s, 1990s investments in the automotive industry seeded a very robust uh, automotive industry in Britain and of course our defence industry has always had a fairly resilient state involvement um, which is very much uh, the, the sort of best example I could I say of um, industrial strategy extant in Britain today. But... I've always hankered after, why don't we do more? Why did Britain at the end of the Second World War build a third of the world's ships by tonnage yet? It builds barely 1% today. Why did that suddenly collapse? What's the story behind it? I devoted much of my undergraduate studies to that question. And it wasn't for lack of trying uh, in terms of reforms. Most notably, Tony Benn, as Minister of Technology, built a reform package for British shipbuilding in the 1960s. It was commissioned Sir re Geddes. Just a report in mid nineteen sixties to reform the British shipbuilding industry into regional conglomerates or horizontally integrating them all. Um, but the problem was it was just changing the badges above the door. The fundamental root causes of problems, many of which identified by Michael in his, his statement, his, his lecture, um, lecturette, <laughs> uh, were very, very clear: low wages, antiquated production system. Uh, and inability to raise capital for reinvestment. And the state wasn't prepared to do what was necessary to make it work. Um, and my kind of take home from that lesson is whether go big or go home on these agendas, Germans did it and the Japanese did it and the South Koreans did it because they had a national, a fully integrated national system of innovation that was formed around financial institutions, government missions uh, and big industrial firms that were able to leverage the sort of capital and investment and focus and patience to deliver the changes that were needed. I won't go into the details of that, but to give an example of how things were failing in Britain whilst other, other nations were succeeding, an interesting one is when I went along to a lecture at Glasgow University a few years ago, and the guy who was given the lecture was a guy called Sir John Parker, um, who wrote the most recent national shipbuilding strategy for the UK. But he started his uh, career in Harlem and Wolf, most famous for building the Titanic, are infamous for building the Titanic. But he was the managing director of the company through the 1970s and 1980s, when it went through a period of nationalisation and then privatisation. And he recognised in the mid-1980s that the cruise ship industry was taking off, that big passenger ships for going around the Mediterranean, this was a new market that was developing very rapidly. And P&O, a British company, wanted to build a new cruise ship called the Oriana, um, and he commissioned a team to develop a design and a product. Uh, they took it to the UK government. It was Ken Clark who was the minister responsible at the time, he said, "We just need extra seed financing. We need to get patient financing to front-load the, the the cash needed to build this ship and to tender competitively internationally against German shipyards for this order." Sorry, we're not interested. You've had enough money. Maggie wants rid of it all. Yeah. Uh, and his point to me, when I said, you're now the chairman, not only, not only leading the national shipbuilding strategy, but you're also the chairman of Carnival Cruise Lines, which owns Cunard and various others, world's biggest operator of cruise ships based in Southampton. Does so, like, it not strike you as little sad as a shipbuilder by background that none of these are getting built in the UK, that they're all getting built in 90% of the world's cruise ships built between Italy, France, Germany, and Finland? Why didn't Britain get in on that action, given its heritage in this industry? And he told me that anecdote. But then he said, to sum it up, really, we had the right strategy in place. The problem was, as soon as it was starting to become affected, it was suffocated. There wasn't the patience and persistence to see it through because our system is so wedded to political expediency and to impatience in politics. Some costs fallacies about, oh, we've done too much already. Let's get out of it. We've wasted public money in a lame duck industry. Um, and that's why... We didn't get that first mover advantage in building that ship. Now the yard that did win the contract, Meyer Werft in Papenburg, 40 miles from the sea I may add, uh, is not only building two cruise ships a year, employing 20,000 people in a supply chain worth something like 3 billion. It's actually the world's biggest purchaser of these equipment because of all the stuff that was on these cruise ships. Uh, It's huge supply chain adjacencies, huge value added in in its value chain. Um, Not only that, as a maritime cluster in the German economy around slow-speed diesel engines, around the the electrics and everything else that goes onto the ships. Um, Britain lost that capability completely. And that really was a real hard one to recognise, that it was a sort of short-term political agenda that that militated against that potential. And now look at an economy like Belfast, where they could have been building those ships massively deindustrialised, very precarious employment, very low wages, uh, poor mental health, all the rest of it. I mean, not just because of the political situation, but because the underlying political economy was so badly damaged as well. And I think that speaks to a lot of the problems that, that Michael um, referred to. It illustrates them quite starkly, I think. And we can't get away from that issue, because even today, when the government tries to make something work, it's always tended to happen in the context of distress or failure. So a good example to fast forward is the recent intervention by the Scottish government in Ferguson, Marine in Port Glasgow. Now, the context of this intervention in a shipyard on the Clyde was because of the Scottish independence referendum in 2014. The shipyard went bust. It ran out of cash. Very easy to do in the shipbuilding industry. But Alex Salmond at the time stepped in. We must save the Clyde shipbuilding industry, iconic industry uh, in the context of the referendum, it was seen as politically expedient to intervene. They managed to get an investor called Sir Jim McCall. He is a billionaire uh, capital financer. He runs various industrial firms in Scotland. Uh, he decided to invest in the shipyard on the understanding that he would be provided with contracts for state-owned ferries for the Clyde Coast and the Hebridean Islands and so on. And he was given a gentleman's agreement that that would happen. Um, but what actually was interesting is that the way in which the whole construct for buying ferries from the state is built... There is Caledonia Maritime Assets Limited, which buys the ferries and then leases them to the ferry operating company Caledonia McBrain. And all that was set up because of EU procurement rules, because you couldn't have the same state company buying the ferries as operating the ferries, and you had to periodically tender them against each other. The kind of absurdities that were introduced by some of those competition rules. So CMAL decided, CMAL and Maritime Assets, were buying the, the, the ships, didn't want to give it to a Scottish shipyard. They were hostile to it. Their board were full of German and Dutch and various other industrialists. Uh, they wanted to tender it and give it to a European shipyard. So from the outset, they were hostile, hostile to working with the shipyard to re-establish a shipbuilding industry in Scotland. Long story short, The shipyard effectively was run into the ground by demands from the customer to change the design, adapt the design, Uh, poor um, patience around developing the design to a mature stage. They were actually at one point rebuilding the shipyard while they were building the ship. Uh, Massive incoherence about managing that project. So now we have a situation where it is the biggest public procurement failure in Scottish history, where the ships are now something like 400% over budget, and it would literally be cheaper scrapping than starting again. And there's something that, uh, it's a completely different subject, but Jane Jacobs, who critiqued urban planning in New York in the 1960s, coined the phrase called catastrophic money in terms of government intervention. And I think this is a a prime example of where, if you don't have the strategy right, you throw money at the problem, actually, as a catastrophic effect that compounds the issue. So whilst all the intentions and objectives were noble enough about restoring the shipbuilding industry, the manner in which it was carried out, because the structure wasn't put in place correctly, meant it was disastrous. And effectively, the whole exercise has failed. What could have been a great success if there had been that one-team approach, the big linkers effectively building the, the project as a unified national mission, could have been together on that, they there going have been a very different story altogether for that, that industry. And I think that just characterises much of what's wrong Failure to be persistent, a failure to set the scene correctly, a failure to have the big vision necessary from government and the persistence to see it through, and perhaps an ignorance of management strategies about how you actually do it effectively, where you might risk just blowing the whole thing up and making it a disaster, which is what's happened. So I think there are case studies around the shipbuilding industry which show where we're not getting it right and perhaps where we could get it better because there's competitors out there who are doing it really well. Uh, Maybe we can turn a corner on it. But right now, the British national shipbuilding strategy is pretty much entirely focused on naval shipbuilding. It's not got any interest in building the entrepreneurial base out into the commercial sector anymore, um, which is a great shame. And, you know, there's so many other things I could refer to. I could talk all day about the issue of takeovers. You know, I spoke recently to the um, CEO of Skyscanner, former CEO and owner of Skyscanner, which was Scotland's first unicorn company, billion dollar valuation tech company. I asked him, why did you sell it to a Chinese company five years ago? And he said, simple answer is, we couldn't uh, safely raise the capital in the UK to do it. So when we were growing out of control, we get scared. We didn't know how to raise the money. We kind of felt we were hurtling downhill on this bobsled that was getting out of control. And we just didn't have the expertise to tell us what to do next in this country. And we didn't have the financial institutions that were prepared to back us up and leverage the financing, gear the financing up. And I think that speaks to a lot of what Michael was saying about the failure to allow our companies to grow safely and securely with the protections needed to allow them to become the global players, the next Googles, the next Amazons, the next SpaceXs. Um, And we just don't allow that to happen. As soon as they show promise, they're snapped up. And to finish on one last anecdote, if I may, um, I'm trying to keep an eye on time. Uh, I'm on on the board of the um, Institute of Engineers and Shipbuilders in Scotland. And every year we hold a dinner called the James Watt Dinner. And we award, uh, we induct people into what's known as the Scottish Engineering Hall of Fame. It's usually four people, three are dead and someone's still alive, just about. Uh, and we invite the person who's still alive to come along and give us sort of um, reflection on their experiences and their career and one example was the chap who pioneered diagnostic ultrasound in Glasgow at the Glasgow Royal Infirmary and he pioneered it by happening to know a pal of his who worked as a metallurgist in the shipbuilding industry He said surely we could use this for gynecological purposes and obstetrics and tried it out with a few experiments and it was highly successful, he worked for a company called Kelvin Instruments at the time and he was just reflecting on how you know, transformation of that invention had been that eureka moment of just working at the interface of two different industries and that kind a of natural occurrence of innovation. But he said, the biggest regret I have in my career is that all of the products and manufacturing benefits of this innovation in Glasgow have went overseas to Philips and Siemens and General Electric. Nothing is built in the UK in relation to this. And the following year, we had the guy who invented the four-digit PIN number and the Autoteller machine in Dundee. With for National Cash Register, which was a big state-directed investment under the Wilson government in the 1960s. And he similarly said, I'm just sad that National Cash Register isn't in Dundee anymore. We don't have that manufacturing benefit. Um, And again, the common refrain was, why didn't we benefit from the manufacturing capability despite all this great innovation we have in Britain? Why can't we capture it and turn it into an industrial proposition that's uh, resilient enough to stay the course to global success? So there's probably a challenge to finish on. Um, And hopefully that's been helpful and insightful.
2: Our final speaker is David Edgerton, who currently teaches history at King's College London. He is the author of many books on British history, including most recently, The Rise and Fall of the British Nation.
4: Thank you very much indeed. Uh, 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 alas, I'm going to continue the, the, the theme of, uh, of uh, negativity, uh, but I'm going to slightly uh, redirect it, uh, uh, not so much at, um, uh, at, at what's happened in, in the past, but how we, how we think about what's happened in the past. And one of the extraordinary things about the way we discuss the British economy uh, today, and industrial strategy in particular, is that we think about it very historically. And my two colleagues here both made reference to the to the past. And that's absolutely standard. We have a very particular historical understanding of where we are in the, in the UK. And as a historian, I have to say I rather regret this. Um, uh, not because I don't think people should stop reading history books, because I think we tend to write the same history book again and again, and it doesn't do us any good. Uh, to, to be told stories that are perhaps not as well grounded as they, um, as they uh, might be. So I want to take a little historical look to start with um, the question of prospects for industrial policy in the UK. And I particularly want to look at arguments uh, from the left. And there is a very powerful left argument the, the United Kingdom has never had a proper industrial strategy and that has been so for deep historical reasons. And We've heard echoes of that uh, uh, today. In essence, British capitalists have been too globalist and imperialist to care about the national economy. The British state has been too liberal and financial to be interested in an industrial strategy. The result of all this is that industrial strategy kind of never really happened, and if it had happened, it wouldn't have succeeded. How to deal with this deep structural problem when you needed a new kind of government of the left with strong powers over the economy, acting behind protectionist barriers. And that government would then have the means to reverse the British Industrial uh, Decline. Now the strongest articulation of this uh, thesis in, in political terms is the alternative economic strategy of the 1970s and 1980s. Now I think in many ways that analysis of what happened in the UK is deeply flawed. The some truth to it if you're thinking about the Edwardian years or the interwar years, but it's not true of the years after 1945. There's a radical discontinuity in British history. After 1945, there was protection. Uh, there was industrial strategy. There was exceptionally high economic growth, higher than at any time before or since in British history. We forget this. And there was radical structural transformation. Indeed. Peak industry, peak manufacturing happened in the 1950s and 60s, not the 1850s and 60s, as you might uh, uh, infer from a lot of British uh, historical writing. The state and state agencies had a major role for good or ill in uh, the transformation of the British economy. Think of agriculture, going from being the biggest food importer in the world to being self-sufficient, by the 1970s and 1980s. It didn't just happen, and it wasn't the result of the common agricultural policy. It happened essentially um, uh, um, for reasons that are already in, in, in play. Think of the disappearance of gasworks. You know, we have, we're cl- very close to a historic gasworks here, Greenwich uh, um, gasworks, replaced by uh, gas from the North Sea. Huge infrastructural transformation, extremely successful. Uh, and largely uh, invisible One that wouldn't happen with a strong Nationalised gas uh, Industry So there was, I'm arguing, a British Developmental state However much it suits uh, Historians and commentators Of the left to believe this could never, have, uh, could never Have Happened And that developmental state wasn't just About the sort of things I've just mentioned It was also about Reducing inequality of income and wealth it was massively reduced after 1945 so too were regional inequalities uh, so there's a, a general transformation of the british uh, economy but there're also some arguments from the left from the right which i think the left needs to take much more seriously and their argument was that there was indeed industrial strategy into the 1970s but it went disastrously the attempt to so-called pick winners turned out to be a policy of supporting lame ducks, that phrase came up again, or white elephants. This is the language of the time. And the classic cases are Concorde uh, and the advanced gas-cooled uh, reactors, still operating today, five of them uh, uh, at least, which a conservative economists described as two of the worst investment decisions in the history of mankind. Yeah. And it was entirely wrong. Uh, uh, about that. We'd all be richer today had those projects never been thought of and I think um, that's an important uh, lesson for the left we should not be supporting industrial strategy in general because it happens not to be a free market strategy and there's a great temptation I think uh, 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 to do that so, a, a powerful technocratic industrial strategy is not necessarily a good thing. A nationalist policy of seriously supporting British technology, not just innovation but development, comes with costs that we may indeed not want to uh, bear. Let's develop this it, a little bit further. Uh, industrial strategy is not necessarily good for workers in the industry the strategy is applied to had some, some little reference to this already. The extraordinary modernization of steel, coal, railways, the post office under public ownership from say the late 60s into the early 80s led to huge job losses. There was massive investment in steel in the late 1960s and early 1970s to create much more efficient industries. Uh, for, um, uh, uh plants than were in operation the closure of Vale uh, in the 1970s michael foot's own constituency was the result not of neglect of steel but of investment in modern uh, in modern plants the early Thatcher government had in fact this is theoretical to say this it had an industrial strategy a powerful and expensive industrial strategy in the case of coal. Uh, the policy was to continue to invest in the new super pits. The idea was not to get rid of coal production, it was to modernise it. The other side, here about, is the closing of the so-called uneconomic pits and the reduction in employment. It's worth noting, actually, the big reductions in coal output came in the 90s, not in the 1980s. Uh, we, we do well to um, remember Another um, uh, Thatcher initiative in industrial strategy, the bringing in of Japanese and other overseas car firms to replace the British car industry. And we talk about the British car industry as a success. It's a bit of a success. Uh, it exports massively, 80% of production, something like that. But the UK has been a net importer of motorcars for the last 40 or 50 years. It's not that great a success. In other uh, words But it was the result of a very deliberate strategy you know, To bring in expert car makers And get rid of the they saw it the rubbishy British car uh, uh, makers Now, uh, that kind of industrial strategy The Thatcherite industrial strategy As well as the old labour industrial strategy Was dead by the 1990s Or nearly so uh, Michael was quite right To to emphasise that in the Blair years uh, Industrial strategy was not a thing Why not? Partly because uh, uh, There was a powerful sense That the Thatcher revolution Had restored the competitive abilities Of British capitalism Very, very important and unusual conclusion For a Labour administration to, uh, to, 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 To come to But also because producing in the UK was not an issue of concern. We lived in a globalized world, and we should make use of the fact that we could import the best telephones from uh, from China, the best uh, shower uh, equipment from Germany, and so on. It was a radical transformation, a radical move away from the policies of the years after 1945. But there's one area in which the major government and then the Blair government, indeed government since, have had uh, industrial strategy of of some sort and that is a policy for research and development. Uh, Indeed, a policy for research and uh, development has um, stood in for industrial strategy. Whenever there were demands to do something about the dependence of British industry, the answer was we are going to do more R&D, and we are going to create mechanisms to transfer the results of R&D into the wider uh, economy. There is a strong belief, um, a long-standing belief, that the UK ha- is peculiarly creative in science and technology and in uh, innovation, uh, and that's behind a lot of this strategy. I think we need, as the left to take a much more critical view of British innovativeness and that direction of policy than we have uh, hitherto. It is important to recognise that that kind of industrial uh, strategy is actually a deliberate strategy to do nothing, to pretend to do something. My favourite example of that is graphene. Now, some of you remember graphene. Um, We should all know about graphene because it was going to be the great new thing of the future. We should all be wearing graphene clothes and going graphene-powered buses and all the rest. We're not, obviously. Um, graphene was invented in the University of Manchester. Uh, Nobel Prize-winning uh, research. Perfect opportunity to throw money encouragement at the great British uh, invention of by Russian scientists in, uh, in the University of, uh, of, uh, of Manchester. Um, George Osborne March of the Makers, remember that? Uh, uh, nearest his, his constituency, uh, uh, decided personally to put 50 million pounds into graphene. graphic. Great hullabaloo, radio programs, a lot of excitement, a lot of, a lot of talk, 50 million pounds. Now, if you believe that you've got a world-changing technology that's gonna change your university, your city, the whole Northwest, the whole country, you don't invest fifty million pounds. You invest fifty billion pounds. Strikingly, you're prepared to invest fifty billion pounds in a railway that doesn't quite get to Manchester. Yeah, but you're not prepared not prepared to invest it in something serious. Now, hundred billion. I think back then it was it was it was it was it was a lower it was a lower uh, a lower figure. Um, so. Uh, What's the point here? The point is you get a hell of a lot of PR for 50 million pounds. And that's really what they were after. And were very successful in that. Uh, Listen uh, more recently very carefully to Boris Johnson when he goes on about electric taxis and uh, uh, and, uh, zero carbon jets. And look at the numbers they're attached to that. A few million pounds. You're not going to get... Zero carbon jets with a few million pounds thrown at research. It is PR. It is not innovation. It is not transformation. That's at stake uh, uh, here. Now, uh, things have changed since then. Uh, we've had the financial crisis, um, and of course, we've had uh, COVID. Uh, a lot of talk about uh, de-globalisation, and of course, Brexit. And I think it's really important to recognise that Brexit is a massive industrial strategy. We may not like it, we may think it'd be disastrous, but it is a strategy for industry. It is about possibly creating a new regulatory framework in which British innovation, uh, British inventive genius can be properly exploited. That is what the advocates are saying all the time, and we need to take that seriously and have um, a a view um, view on it. We need to think also about the more ambitious R&D strategy, in particular um, that uh, developed by Dominic Cummings, uh, embodied in his new uh, DARPA-like funding agency called uh, ARIA, uh, the government has indeed put a lot of emphasis on uh, creating new industries out of British technology. The trumpeting of the, of the success of AstraZeneca um, uh, vaccine is a very important case uh, in point and has been quite successful and it's quite often talked about as an example of what you could do with industrial strategy. We might note, however, that most of the vaccines that we've had put into our arms had not been AstraZeneca, Uh, Indeed, they have been imported from the European Union, from the United States, and even some of the AstraZeneca that was put into our arms came from India. The UK is not a net exporter of vaccines. It's a massive net importer. Stories can get very, very mixed up. So, um, some thoughts for uh, the future to, 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 to complete Old style industrial strategy Will not create uh, Jobs yeah. If we were to get back to uh, Let's say 1940s Levels of coal production We could do it with a handful Of miners, we would not have a quarter Of a million miners um, And that applies to many Many other industries As well uh, Secondly The uh, uh, belief in a particular British innovative genius is a delusion uh, which the left has fallen for as well as the uh, right. The UK is not a high spender on innovation. Uh, it, it represents two percent of global R&;D spend. Um, and it, so it is not in uh, the Premier League, it's in the first division. And if I were a football manager, I, would, I wouldn't uh, believe that the way to get from the first division into the Premier League is to buy Premier League players. That would be uh, a route to immediate bankruptcy yeah? rather than escalation up, the, um, up, up, up the, uh, the league. And there's another very important uh, uh, danger uh, inherent in believing that British high-tech is the future. And that is that we don't take, uh, 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 we don't care enough about the industries that are actually operating. One, I was very struck by Paul's uh, story of uh, uh, the cruise liners. It's absolutely right. The cruise, line, cruise liner production did not go to Korea or to Japan or to China. It went to expensive European yards. Yeah. Now, why? What, there's another reason behind all this. If you were to go to a British uh, uh, industrial strategy minister and say, uh, Minister, I don't think we should invest in all in this high-tech uh, 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 stuff. All this graphene, that's not really going to be the future for the UK. Somebody else will, will take that up. But, Minister, we uh, have got a, uh, some really exciting possibilities in building ships. That minister would turn around and say, you're exactly the sort of sort of problem we have in this, this country. Nostalgic for the past, a past that can never be re, re, recaptured. You want to keep going with these old skills uh, when we need to uh, completely uh, uh, transform ourselves into a modern economy. Yeah. But The economically correct route would have been to dump Concorde and have another QE. So that's, those are the kind of things we need to, to think about. And indeed, we are beginning to, to think about I was very pleased to hear um, uh, Michael uh, remind us about the foundational economy and the everyday uh, economy, um, the need to reduce inequality, to think about services people receive, to think about people's wages, to think about people's security of um, uh, employment, to think indeed about the great bulk of the and that's absolutely what we should do, focus on reducing inequality in this country, increasing productivity in general. And for that reason, I think we should drop the term industrial strategy. Because industrial applies to a small fraction of the total economy. And indeed, when we think of industry, we tend to think about manufacturing, going back to that to that point. A tiny, 10%, I think, or less, of the, of the economy. We, we need to put that in its own box and focus on the big story, which is indeed the rest of the uh, economy. Very last thought, this isn't just a theoretical discussion as to how economies work and whether we should intervene or not. The reality is increasingly now that we will have to intervene. Uh, it's not a choice between industrial strategy and no industrial strategy. It's the choice between different sorts of, of uh Of strategy. And to do that, I think we have to be much, much more critical of the historical record of British uh, intervention. It's just not good enough to believe it has never been tried before. Let's go and do it. We've got to learn from the mistakes
1: of the past. Thank you for tuning in to this recording from Progressive Economics 2022, a festival for the future of economics. For more information on our upcoming events and to keep up to date with our latest research, visit progressiveeconomyforum.com.